so, so central in our lives. And something that becomes so, so apparent in our meditation practice, the role of thought. It was, it was Descartes in, I think, the 1600s who was looking for, uh, for something that he could, he could trust. He, he didn't want to, he did this kind of experiment in radical skepticism where he asked the question, what do I really know? Because the senses sometimes fail us. It's hard to make logical deductions about the world. What can I really know? If I were radically skeptical, what can I really know? What's beyond doubt? And famously he said, I think, therefore I am. And he said, you couldn't doubt the existence of thinking because that would just be more thinking. So this I know. Everything else may be illusion, but I know that I am because I think. Now, later philosophers and Earlier, the Buddha would say, why, it's just a grammatical habit that you've added the subject, I, to thinking. Thinking is arising. This may be more precise, but we'll, we'll get into that. So on the one hand, Thought can be so valuable, right? These, all, all of the teachings, the inherited tradition of the Buddha, the Dharma, this is all handed down to us in the form of writing and ideas and thoughts. And in very important ways, uh, the Dharma is, um, it's a practice, but it's also a way of thinking about experience. And in this way, it's very powerful and liberating. And yet, on the other hand, we have this other trope in Buddhism where the most valued insights, the most cherished understandings, the the richest silence is considered ineffable, uh, unsayable, beyond the realm of ideas. And so, for example, the famous quote from from Douglas Harding, um, who um, pointed to an experience that meditators may know that's beyond thought. 
So he said, what actually happened was something absurdly simple and unspectacular. I stopped thinking. A peculiar quiet, an odd kind of alert limpness came over me. Reason and imagination and all mental chatter died down. I forgot who I was, my name, my manhood, my animalhood, all that could be called mine. It was as if I had been born that instant, brand new, mindless, innocent of all memories. There existed only the now, that present moment and what was clearly given in it. To look was enough. So there are these two sides of our practice of celebrating thought and pointing to the value of the cessation of thinking. Tonight I wanted to try to give a kind of balanced, even uh, treatment of thinking uh, to consider its role in our lives, how it... um, its power and beauty and also the uh, suffering that uh, can arise out of certain kinds of, of thinking and specifically identification with certain kinds of thinking. That is not knowing thought as thought. So I don't know about you, but as I feel like as meditators, we're almost like embarrassed that we think. <laughs> Especially when you really get into practice and you start going on retreats and there can be this sense of like, yeah, there's a, it's just a little shameful that I... <laughs> am thinking all the time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, maybe the most common misconception when people come into meditation practice is that the healing comes from the um, banishing thought. The healing, the healing that, that comes from meditation comes only when thought ceases. And that our goal is somehow to manipulate the mind in such a way that there is this enforced silence. We all know the experience of that, uh, the shame of returning the attention to the breath again, (laughs) right? It's like our little meditation walk of shame, kind of just, and and the, the conditioned habits of 
self-judgment can run so deep. It's amazing. After all these years, there's a part of me that's still shocked that again I have become absorbed in thinking. And I think even tonight I suggested that you can sort of very gently, instantly forgive yourself when you actually notice that you've become caught in the discursive thinking. Now, before we actually learn to to practice meditation, we really don't know just how spellbound we are by our inner dialogue. Joseph Goldstein famously said that that he thinks that that uh, said something like before people practice, I, I think a lot of people don't know that they have a mind, you know. And I think if you had asked me before I started practice, what's going on up there, Matthew? I don't know honestly what I would have said, but I, if you had asked whether I could follow my breath for 10 minutes straight without interruption, I think I might have said yes. (laughs) And then I sit down for, I think the first time I meditated was two minutes, what I could muster. And I sit down and I was so startled by what was happening. And I just, I just could not believe how much was actually going on, how active the mind was, how strong the gravitational pull of thinking was. And so we, we actually start to, to see this in, when we practice. There's a phenomena when when you ask people about their level of mindfulness before they start practicing, and then you ask them after like an eight-week class, sometimes what they'll report is their mindfulness is getting worse, (laughs) right? And maybe that's true sometimes, but often what it looks like is people are actually becoming more sensitive to the level of distractedness. That actually knowing how spellbound we are by our internal dialogue requires a modicum of awareness that we often actually don't have when we start practice. And so we're uh, kind of amazed by the, the fact that we're, we're sort of like the protagonist in the, the play or the documentary film, but we're also the narrator, right? And that sense of needing to narrate our lives runs 
very deep. Uh, I'll talk more about that, but it's like there's something very, um, a little, uh, feels unsafe to let go of the narration. So, um, we can first just acknowledge the power of thought. Um, you know, in, in uh, cognitive therapy, the very, which is sort of cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy, the, uh, which is a sort of dominant force in the mental health world, the starting point is that thought impacts emotion. And that thoughts, and particularly the kind of habitual, automatic thoughts about self, world, and future, can lead us into uh, symptoms uh, and a lack of ease. And that the mechanism of change in cognitive therapy is actually um, reframing and, and uh, examining, testing out the validity of these automatic thoughts. But long before that, the Buddha um, acknowledged the power of the, the mind to, uh, to shape, to condition our experience and to impact our the future. And so in the, the opening lines of the Dhammapada, um, and this is Gil, Gil Fransdahl's translation, uh, all experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So we can acknowledge uh, the, the force of thinking and its potential uh, as a very positive influence in our practice. I think teachers don't always spell it out very explicitly, but some of what we're being asked to do is to consider particular views, to consider ways of understanding experience, and to contemplate them. And in our lives, these dharma understandings, which are really thoughts, they arise in the form of thoughts, are very active. And it's like more and more of our life actually reminds us of dharma. Suffering reminds us of dharma. Ease reminds us of dharma. 
our life becomes very close to, uh, closely tethered to a lot of ideas that are actually empowering and can be liberating. We should ask, though, um, what is thinking? Like, what is a thought? It seems like this, like, super vague experience, right? It's so, it's so ubiquitous in our lives. It's, and yet, when we actually, like, ask the question, what is a thought? It can be hard to answer, but I think there are some good answers. Um, one of the ways that thought has been characterized by, by um, one of my teachers, Shenzhen Yang, is that it's not this kind of vague thing that sort of we can't pin down. It's actually something we, we really can bring a lot of mindfulness to. And the distinction that he made, which has been very helpful in, in my practice, is that thought has a visual component and an auditory component. That is, thought arises in the form of mental images, right? So if we all close our eyes for a moment, and you sort of direct the attention towards the brightness or darkness behind the closed eyes. And if I ask you to imagine the route that you took to get here tonight, would sense maybe a kind of fleeting image, series of images. And you might have a sense of your, the room, <coughs> images arising and passing of your body. Now opening the eyes. We're imaging life much of the time this is actually something that, in a certain sense, we are seeing without knowing that we're seeing it. Right? There's a difference between seeing and knowing we're seeing. Just like we can be mindful of the visual field here with our eyes open, normally we're just 
seeing, but we can actually become aware that we're seeing, right? We can be mindful that we're seeing. And it's not so different, but different enough to make a big difference in our lives. We're aware of the visual field and we can become aware of the mental images This is one component of thinking. The other component that we're maybe even more familiar with is the internal talk, right? And that's usually what we just call thinking, right? But what, what is it? The Buddha said we actually have to know phenomena as phenomena. Meaning that we don't we don't just take experience at face value. We don't just take the conclusions of the mind at face value. We actually look to see what what is this? And the realm of internal talk is, um, is a very, it's a vast and profound kind of realm to explore as a phenomena. Meaning that we're training ourselves to be able to hear internal talk rather than listen and obey. Because if we don't actually learn to know internal talk as internal talk, if we don't learn to know that simply as a voice that arises in the field of experience, we hear it as a kind of commandment, like a divine conclusion. And it, it is very, um, it's very subtle uh, because even when we try to, to hear the mind thinking. It's like we're watching one mouse hole and then sometimes we see that mouse of thought, of internal talk, but there's another mouse hole behind us. And so what we do is we step off the ground of one register of thinking, but then we get onto the ground of another register of thinking. And so, for example, maybe we hear ourselves saying something critical about ourselves. 
and we actually maybe are meditating and we notice this, and we, we actually kind of hear that in a certain way. But then often what happens is we actually get on board the, no, I'm not bad, I'm good. That's a lot better than I'm bad. But it's still standing on the ground of thought. It's still taking internal talk too seriously. And some of what the Buddha was pointing to was a way of, of stepping off the ground of internal talk and into some silence. into a a mode of being where we actually are not fabricating meanings. This is very... um, I alluded to a sense of safety or lack of safety There's something about the narration. I I have Morgan Freeman's voice in my mind right now. Like, there's something about, I wish it was Morgan Freeman's voice in my head. Um, There's something about uh, the kind of, the, the compulsion to stay oriented, to keep the narration without pause that I think creates a little bit of sense of safety for us. I don't know what the actual architecture is, you know, evolutionarily exactly, although I'll I'll talk a little about that. But it feels to me like if we let go of the compulsive orienting, there's a wave of some fear, like we're vulnerable in a new way if we're not scanning the environment, assessing threats and opportunities at every moment of our life. That, that makes sense? Yeah. And so one of the effects of that narration is it, is it provides a kind of um, a sense of some safety, but it's mostly uh, it's actually the silence is safer than we think. Yeah. And Uh, from some sense of inner silence, it's not like um, we become utterly lost in the world. When a kind of stimulus reaches a certain threshold, thinking will arise. We will keep ourselves safe. And some of our meditation practice is learning to be more and more comfortable with disorientation. 
with the mind that doesn't know. Equanimity with confusion. Equanimity with uncertainty. A sense of safety even when we don't have this airtight narrative of where we've been, where we are, where we're going. It can begin to feel more and more safe, actually. It, it feels, I think, uh, to me, like we should always be worrying about something. Like if we're not, we're just kind of being slackers. <laughs> right? There will actually always be something to worry about. <laughs> That's a little bit like what the Buddha said in the First Noble Truth. Uh, and yet our kind of redemptive hope and trust in worry is uh, misplaced. So in meditation, we're... Uh, learning to uh, let go of the need to come to conclusions. If you look inwards, you'll see as we sit, as we follow the breathing, the mind is this meaning-making machine and it is attempting to come to a new conclusion all the time. It's attempting to find its ground in a certain way. Like, oh, that was a good mindful breath. Or, I'm making progress. Or, I'm hopeless. Or, a million things. But we keep landing on conclusions. And some of our practice is getting accustomed to resting in experience without conclusions, without being oriented, without needing all of the familiar reference points of past and future, of body and world, self and other. It's actually okay, it's safe for things to become vague. But of course, we have very, uh, you know, this habit of, the, of mind wandering is etched deep into our biology. So this is a 
Malia Mason in a, in a very um, important paper on the neuroscience of mind wandering. Um, and she writes, what does the mind do in the absence of external demands for thought? Is it essentially blank springing into action only when some task requires attention? Everyday experience challenges this account of mental life. In the absence of a task that requires deliberative processing, the mind generally tends to wander, flitting from one thought to the next with fluidity and ease. Given the ubiquitous nature of this phenomena, it's been suggested that mind wandering constitutes a psychological baseline from which people depart when attention is required elsewhere and to which they return when tasks no longer require conscious supervision. A kind of radical statement like that that mind wandering constitutes the psychological baseline. In fact, it's even been been characterized as a uh, a kind of network of brain regions that that's been called the the default mode network. the default mode network, meaning what does the brain do when not tasked with a particular activity? And it's not like the brain becomes silent. It's actually some areas become more highly activated during those times. And it's been called the default mode network. and. Um, is a lot of um, we we know this because it feels like the place the mind returns to when we just like don't put any effort in whatsoever it returns to something like mind wandering yeah it returns to something like um remembering, planning, imagining, fantasizing, worrying. And it may, those, those realm of thoughts may have nothing to do with what's actually happening in this moment. And so when they do experiments, they give people like a beeper or something or use the phone to randomly prompt people like, at different times in the day, are you focused on what you're doing right now? Or is the mind wandering? And in one, one famous study from, from Dan, Dan Gilbert, it was uh, the proportion of times when the mind was wandering, it w- was 47%. Uh, a lot. Yeah, high proportion of time when the attention is actually not focused on the task at hand. 
and as I was saying, this the uh, and I'm not I'm not a neuroscientist, and I I know enough about neuroscience to know that I shouldn't talk about it much, <laughs> basically. Uh, but I'll share just some of some of uh, the, these findings. Um, this, these brain regions that are, that are sort of key nodes of the default mode network, the posterior cingulate and um, medial prefrontal cortex, are interesting in part because they, they're closely linked with self-referential processing. That is, when we're thinking, when the mind is wandering, where it's wandering in a particular way, and it's usually taking the self as the central actor, it's taking the self as really the center of the world in that moment. And so, uh, neuroscientist Jennifer Beer says, uh, the increased resting metabolism of the medial prefrontal cortex, increased activity in this brain region, is theorized to, quote, support a default psychological mode of self-evaluation that provides chronic generalized updates on the self. chronic generalized updates on the self and this is sort of uh, what we're doing in in a lot of our life and in meditation and the image I have is you know if you, if you sort of like fall down or something and you sort of want to check to see whether you're injured, you might, you know, you might sort of like, just like pat yourself down and just see if there are any tender spots or anything hurting, right? And that's the image that I have. And we're like patting down the self, like palpating to see if there are any problems, right? Now this form of thinking is, is um, it cuts, cuts both ways. Um, this is Mark, Mark Leary, who's done a lot, a lot of different research, but this is it from a, a book on emotion regulation. The evolution of human self-awareness constituted a seismic shift in mammalian psychology. Although some of the pre-human ancestors may have possessed rudimentary forms of self-awareness, the archaeological record indicates that people did not have the capacity to think about themselves in the abstract and symbolic ways that characterize modern human beings until culture began to appear between 40 and 60,000 years ago. 
The evolution of self-awareness had important implications for human beings' emotional lives because emotions often arise from the ways in which people think about themselves. Self-awareness and self-relevant thought have implications for stimuli that trigger emotional states, the specific emotions people experience, and people's efforts to manage and regulate their emotions. To conclude, self-awareness was perhaps the pivotal psychological adaptation that put human beings on a distinctly different path than that of other animals. From the standpoint of emotion, however, the capacity to think consciously about oneself is both a blessing and a curse. It's been hypothesized that one of the ways meditation may lead to greater well-being is that it actually acts to transform the default mode network in some way. That it actually begins to change the baseline default position to which the mind returns and that we actually become over time, over the months and years of practice, uh, we find ourselves not becoming as deeply lost in the story of self that would otherwise be the kind of home base We, we know that sense of like the home base of your being feels like it's tangled up in thought. In a deep way, who we think we are, that the sense of the, the self inside is intimately connected with thought with story. And that's why uh, Dan, Dan Dennett called the self the center of narrative gravity. The center of narrative gravity. That's how he defined the self. And I love that uh, because it highlights the way in which coagulated thought, story not known as story, internal talk and mental image not known as thought, creates the illusion of I amness, the illusion of someone inside the body. Andy Alinsky uh, says, the, the apparent need to be someone so deeply inculcated by the great Western thinkers is viewed by Buddhist tradition as an unfortunate insecurity beyond which humanity is capable of evolving. What replaces the imperative to forge an identity 
is an invitation to awaken to the full potential of conscious awareness. So the journey um, out of the, the illusion of self is really a practice of noticing at more and more subtle levels the different layers of thought. of not needing to take up ground, of not needing to have a place, of not needing to stand somewhere, because we always stand on thought. As the mind gets more settled and quiet, we develop some some uh, samadhi, concentration or unification of the mind. And this is so important for us because until then, Buddhism is kind of just another philosophy. And what distinguishes it, what makes it actually more radical in its potential, is that it, it is good philosophy, or, uh, but it's, it, when it's paired with the quiet of the mind, we actually start to develop some deep uh, faith in ourselves and in the path. there's some real uh, safety, uh, refuge in the silence. And even just tasting some silence has the effect of breaking the spell of our hermetically sealed narrative. One way that we grow in this path is that the story of self and where I came from and where I'm going and how my life is going and what I want and what I don't want, all of that is uh, kind of held in the vastness of awareness. And when you hold that in the vastness of awareness, it drains the emotional charge from the narrative. And so we all know those times when we like really have to say something to someone, when something happens and it's just like, there's so much urgency to share, and that's fine, that's fine. 
but a lot of our lives can be lived with that that narrative feels so urgent. And one way that practice evolves, one way that the Dharma life unfolds, is that there's so much less urgency in the story. It's not that it's wrong, or we don't need it, or we don't have narratives, or we don't have aspirations. But the, the sense of being uh, enmeshed in story, that really goes away. And there's a kind of lightness and playfulness and freedom that comes out of holding the story. The gravitational pull of the story is reduced. Now, you know, all of this um, potentially turns, gives the, the impression that thought is the enemy in some way. And I've said a lot of maybe attractive things about non-thought. We want to be careful, though. Uh, Even when meditation teachers don't say thought is the enemy, sometimes implicitly that's what's... There's a reason why we feel shame in bringing the attention back to the the breath, right? I, I think often there is some implicit message that... we need to stop thinking. Jason Siff, insight meditation teacher, very thoughtful person, wrote wrote a book called Unlearning Meditation. Unlearning Meditation. I think the subtitle is like, A Guide for When the Instructions Get in the Way. And one of the things that he's highlighted is that we have developed an aversion, a subtle aversion to thinking in a way that really can make our meditation practice feel unnatural and feel forced. So he writes, it's quite natural for us to develop a hierarchy of meditative states At the top are what we consider optimal states of mind, such as clarity, equanimity, mindfulness, and deeply tranquil experiences that are wakeful. Near the bottom are those experiences considered mundane or uninteresting. Generally, at the very bottom are negative emotional or painful states of mind. This hierarchy of meditative states may not be explicitly stated in anything you've heard or read, but it's been reinforced by other meditators and teachers alike. It comes up as a word or phrase describing how you feel about an experience. When I ask people to look at how their hierarchy operates in their sitting meditation practice, 
they sometimes feel as though they're being asked to let go of the optimal states they experience. This is not the case. It's not about letting go of optimal states, but about seeing how you assess your experiences using them as a standard for comparison. And by asking you to look at those experiences that have been devalued, I'm not asking you to dwell on those experiences, but to consider that by devaluing them, it becomes hard for you to be with them and learn from them. We all have some kind of hierarchy, even if it's subtle, about what we think we should be experiencing. And we match up those experiences as, we, as a kind of, um, we use that as a barometer for how we're doing. And in that judging, uh, we're actually devaluing uh, part of the human experience. In this case, thinking. And so, I think it's possible to be aware and appreciate silence, appreciate the kind of freedom from selfing that comes when we can notice thought in its subtle forms. We can appreciate all of that and still not make ourselves wrong that thought arises. We can still not use silence as the barometer against which we judge every meditative or life experience. We're learning to make peace with the entirety of the human condition. That includes thought in all of its beauty and suffering. Let's just sit for a moment. coming into a kind of loving relationship with thought.
really easy and natural with the mind. May whatever goodness arises out of your intention this evening, out of your practice, out of your aspiration for freedom, may this goodness be of service to others in your life. May our lives be a kind of quiet blessing to all that we encounter. Thank you. Nice to uh, nice to be with you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.